This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight on Huckabee, IFCJ President Yale Eckstein defends Israel. Colorado cake artist and author Jack Phillips. Shared parenting advocate Mark Ludwig. And country music stuff, Rockman. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Goldberg. And now, here's Mike And welcome, everybody. We have a terrific audience here in our theater. We hope you will come and be a part of our audience sometime because these guys have a lot of fun being here in person. But you're going to have a good time right here on the show. I don't know if you uh, will remember this, but one of the great movies of all time is the movie Cool Hand Luke starring Paul Newman. Remember that? Now, there are many classic moments but none in that movie more prominent than this one. Uh, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Yep, that's what we got here is a failure to communicate. That famous line uttered by Strother Martin as the captain in that classic film Cool Hand Luke could well be the theme for dealing with the followers of the so-called progressive movement. The very term progressive is stunningly misleading because those who embrace progressivism, they're doing anything but moving America toward progress. I mean, America was once on a path to the age of the Jetsons, but these academically plump but intellectually skinny screamers would be content to take us to the age of the Flintstones. <laughs> what they say is almost always totally opposite of what they really mean. They say they are for diversity, but what they really want is uniformity. And that uniformity with a far left worldview that rejects traditional Judeo-Christian values for a world like that in the time of the Old Testament judges, when every man did what was right in his own eyes. What they want is a culture built on the ever-changing and completely elusive standard of what one feels, thinks, or believes. Facts are of less importance than storytelling, which, by the way, storytelling is the centerpiece of critical race theory. One's personal feelings, as experienced in one's own story, becomes way more important than accuracy and objective reality. Now, this is not innocent gibberish. It's changing the world that your children and grandchildren are growing up in, and there is nothing about it that's moving us to progress. A progressive says we ought to strive for tolerance, 
But that's not true. The most intolerant people in our entire country are those who demand that we accept without question or discussion a wacky world in which there are 57 genders. We get to pick our pronouns and the gender in which we shall be identified as easily and effortlessly as we would selecting an ice cream flavor at Baskin Robbins. And if one should identify as a Bible-believing Christian regarding sexuality and marriage, that person should not just be pitied, but put out of business and banned from society. That's tolerance? Now, I'm gonna let you in on something. One reason that I understand the nonsense of how the progressive movement uses terms that are the actual opposite of what they state is because I grew up in the South. <laughs> you know why? Yeah. You see, we learn early as Southerners that what a person says isn't always what they actually mean. And folks from Vermont or Michigan, they don't understand this. And it can lead to some very embarrassing, even dangerous moments. For example, if a Southerner says he's gonna fix you a Coke, he does not mean that the bottle is broken or that he's even gonna bring you a Coca-Cola. It just means he's gonna fetch you a soft drink, though it might be a Dr. Pepper, an RC Cola, or even a knee-high belly washer big orange. <laughs> and if a Southern woman begins or ends a sentence with the three words, bless your heart, it does not mean what you think it does. It means you're about to be disemboweled by a sharp knife. Let me tell you something, if a Southern woman ever raises her eyebrows and asks, what did you say? She is not asking you to repeat your last statement. <laughs> she is asking if you're good with Jesus because you're about to meet him. That's what she means. Yes. We clearly got some Southerners in the room and they know what I'm talking about. Well, progressives are not interested in free speech. They only tolerate speech that affirms their feelings. They may say social justice, but there's nothing social or just about destroying someone's business with firebombs and looting a store, running off with sneakers and a flat screen TV. And they may demand that rich people pay their fair share, but what they truly mean is that people who worked really long and hard and made good investment decisions ought to hand over their earnings to people who get up at noon, watch Netflix from their parents' basements all day. <laughs> Progress is about things getting better and improving. And nothing improves when we reject the standard of truth for a standard of what I feel, what I think, what I believe. And to those who think that's progress, I got just three words for you. Bless your heart. <laughs> With the ceasefire now in place between Israel and Hamas, humanitarian groups are helping on the ground and they're providing life-saving aid and support. Now you've seen Yael Eckstein on our show and you've seen her in spots where she and I are traveling around Israel, seeing firsthand the significant work of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. 
Joining us now is the president and CEO of the largest provider of emergency aid in all of Israel, Yale Eckstein of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Yael, first of all, uh, I'm glad there's a ceasefire. I'm praying that it holds, uh, but there must be an enormous sense of relief in Israel uh, with that announcement made just hours ago. Shalom, Governor. And firstly, thank you so much for having me on your show and with your amazing audience and staff there. Um, yes, there is definitely mixed emotions here in Israel. On one hand, we are so relieved that our children can leave the bomb shelters and go back to school and that we don't need to worry about rockets hitting every time we leave our house to go to the grocery store. Um, but there's also a sense, really, of the Hamas terrorists are on our border. And so we seek peace, we yearn for peace, we pray for peace, and we're so happy now that, God willing, there'll be peace. But it just reaffirms what Israel has been living with really since its establishment in 1948, that the next stage of come is only for our enemies to gear up for the next war. You guys are busy every day of the year providing food and emergency assistance. I imagine that during a time like this, the resources that uh, the fellowship is involved with are stretched incredibly thin because now you have so many more people who are hurting, who are suffering, who are homeless because of the rockets that have been uh, bombarded into Israel. Describe for us what's going on with uh, the International Fellowship of Christian and Jews right now. Well, on a regular day, the fellowship helps over 15,000 of Israel's poorest elderly who don't have any family, don't have any support, that we bring them food, we bring them comfort. And as over 3,000 rockets are launched at Israeli cities, those elderly have moved to their bomb shelters. And many more elderly who have no one to bring them food, comfort them, especially during this terrifying time. And so the fellowship came up with programs where we brought thousands of entertainment packages to children and special needs children in bomb shelters. We went and we brought thousands of meals to elderly in their bomb shelter. And we even identified the locations where the most rockets were falling, where there were no bomb shelters. And we placed 20 bomb shelters on the ground under rocket fire um, in order to save lives, because that's what our Christian friends rely on us to do in their name, on their behalf. And we do that immediately without stopping and without waiting. Yeah, you must be very proud and grateful for the commitment that these people are making. They're not military people. These are just humanitarians. All of our staff has been leaving their families in bomb shelters, their children in bomb shelters, in order to go out and provide for the least of these, for those who don't have anyone to care for them. And they do it with a smile and feeling privileged. There's been a lot of suffering in Gaza itself because, uh, unfortunately, Hamas, which is not a government, it's a terrorist organization. People don't fully grasp that. They're run, the whole Gaza area is run by terrorists rather than a government. Um, and I'm not asking you to jump into the political aspect of this, but what our viewers need to understand is that part of the reason that so much destructions or destruction happens on that side is because when Hamas gets money, most of it coming from Iran, they don't spend it to buy bomb shelters and uh, safe places for their citizens are food or infrastructure that would help them with hospitals. They use the money to buy rockets so that they can fire them at civilians. But in Israel, 
the Israeli government uh, insists on buildings having bomb shelters, and they have the Iron Dome, without which thousands of Israelis would have been killed. And I, I just think when people say, well, that many Israelis didn't get killed, there's a reason they didn't get killed, because the government works very hard and makes great, great strides to protect them through the Iron Dome and shelters and, and other means. Is, is that a big thing that people don't understand if they don't live there in Israel? Well, Governor, just hearing you say that feels like, finally, somebody <laughs> understands. It's so important because that's the starting point. You know, every day when I pray for the children of Israel over this conflict, I pray for the children of Gaza also because they are being held hostage by their terror organization who has become a government. I go back to 2005 when Israel took every last Jewish person out of the Gaza Strip so that the Palestinians can have their state. Israel invested millions of dollars building greenhouses and setting up the structure that they can have a functioning economy. And then there were elections in the Gaza Strip between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. And what Hamas did was killed every single rival by throwing them off buildings, dragging them through the streets by horses, throwing rocks at their dead bodies in order to make a point. They burned down every greenhouse that Israel left them, every single economy, uh, poss economic possibility for thriving there, they destroyed. And so when I say, when I hear people say, free Gaza, what I say is, yes, free Gaza from Hamas. In the, in the moments that we have left, how can people help you? Because I know that a lot of the support for the fellowship comes from Christian people here in the United States. How can they help and why is it so urgent that they help right now? Well, I am so humbled to represent the voice and actions of millions of Christians in the United States who donate through the fellowship so that their voice here in Israel will be heard. That as the women and children and families are hiding in the bomb shelters from rockets overhead, they see that sign that says donated with love from Christians in America and they know that they're not alone. And so that's what I represent here in Israel, the voice of those millions of individuals that sometimes the government might represent them, sometimes not, but that they're not relying on anyone else to represent them on a national level. They're representing themselves through the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. And you can visit us at www.ifcj.org. And you can always follow me in my daily life on Facebook and Instagram at Yael Eckstein. Yael, thank you so much. Joy to have you here. And uh, we're praying for you during this terrible conflict. And for our audience, we also want to say that you can learn more about the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews and donate, just as Yael said, at ifcj.org. Right now, Keith Bilbrey is going to contribute to the show. He's going to tell us what we have coming up next. Well, tonight, parenting advocate Mark Ludwig, later country music hitmakers, the frontman. You're watching Huckabee. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. Studies show that children raised in one-parent households are more likely to suffer from a range of negative effects. And yet, divorce courts routinely just relegate fathers to the status of a weekend visitor. Mark Ludwig is working to change that. I want you to welcome the founder of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, Mark Ludwig. Mark, good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. You know... (laughs) 80% of the time when there is a divorce, which is always unfortunate, always say the only real winners in a divorce are the lawyers. Exactly. But 80% of the time, the judge just arbitrarily gives custody to the mom, and the dad is kind of uh, left out. Exactly. And and unfortunately, most people aren't aware of the situation until it happens to them. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't. uh, 12 years ago, if someone mentioned there was a problem, I, I wasn't aware it was an issue until it happened to me. Mm. So when it happened to you, unfortunately, you and your uh, spouse uh, split and uh, a child, a son involved, you, I'm sure, thought, okay, well, I'll get him half time. She'll get him half time. We'll share this. Didn't quite work out like that, huh? Yeah, my situation, out of respect for my son, I try to not divulge too many uh, details about his mother and everything because I I firmly believe that two parents need to realize they've got a child and we need to keep our... uh, Problems to ourselves, but yeah, there were some issues with his mother that I had a, a, a challenge with, and I ended up going 204 days without seeing him. He wow. was moved without my knowledge, and at one point I thought I would never see him again. Mm. And uh, it was it was horrible. I started writing a, a journal during that period of time because I thought just in case something happens to me, I want him to know that I loved him and I was thinking about him every day. So I, I started writing to him every night before I went to bed. And I still do it to this day. He's got 42 books now of journals. 42 books that, of journals. Uh, every night before I've written, to, before I go to bed for 11 years now, I've written to him. So his entire life is journaled. And uh, when he turns 21, I'm going to uh, give him to him. And I've, I've tried to not de-edify his mom, but let him know how much I cared about him and how much I was thinking about him during everything that went on. So this became, first, a personal issue, you trying to make sure that you could be involved in your son's life. At what point did you decide... You know, this is a a bigger thing than me. There are dads all over the country who are being shot out of their children's lives, and they really have a hard uh, pathway going through court to get either joint custody or sometimes even simple visitation. When did you decide you were going to do something bigger than just fight for your own son's case? Well, I'd been pretty active in St. Louis in the community. I'd served on a lot of board of directors and was very politically active. And so once it happened to me, I started getting phone calls that started trickling in, and then it became like a tidal wave saying, Mm. hey, the same thing happened to me. The same thing happened to me. And uh, I finally decided, you know what? I've got a lot of political connections. Why don't I start working on trying to get legislation passed? And my biggest passion, believe it or not, is not even for me to make the change, but to educate people across the country so they can make the change. What kind of legislative things have to happen in a state in order to change that pathway? Um, The biggest key that we're working on at the statewide level is what we call a 50-50 rebuttable presumption. Uh, And what that says is when you walk into the courtroom, the child should be presumed to have equal access to those parents the same way they did the day before the divorce. 
Hmm. Now, the judge still has discretion, but you don't arbitrarily pick a winner and a loser, which is what happens nowadays. Nowadays, someone walks into a attorney's office and most attorneys will say, look, you know, you're not going to get 50-50 in our state. Yeah. One of you is going to win and one of you is going to lose. So it turns parents into adversaries. Exactly. And then the children are injured by that because they see this even bigger fight. That, that's a, it's a horrible thing. And I mean, we've kind of embodied it into our law. When I'm thinking about how this could be changed, I'm also thinking, what happens when it doesn't change? When dads are left out of their children's lives, or for that matter, when a mom is. So what are some things that statistically happen to a child? Well, and that's it is statistics show, and I'll fight just as hard for a mother as I will for a father, because I'm not fighting for the, the parent, I'm fighting for the child. That child needs both parents in their lives. Great point Regardless to make. You're not fighting I, for the parent. Exactly. You're fighting for the child. I'm so glad you said that. That's beautiful. You know, regardless of how I feel personally about my son's mother, that's his mom. Yeah. And she adds value to his life that I can't add. I believe that's why God designed it for two people to create a child. Hmm. We both have strengths and we both have weaknesses. And we compensate for those when we're raising a child. And statistics have shown in, from a fatherless standpoint, a child growing up with a, without a father, 80 to 95 or to 94% of all teenage runaways, teenage pregnancies, teenage drug problems, teenage behavioral problems, 80 to 94% of all of those, the one common thing is they grew up without a dad. Wow. And yes, That's we do have- That's a staggering amount of oh, it, it's phenomenal. social disruption. And you think of how much of that is created you know, 21 million people, kids going through the family court system that are relegated to a visitor with one of their parents. Wow. You know, with myself, you know, my son misses out on the experience of dad getting, around, get, dad getting ready for school, dad yeah. doing homework. I become the Disney dad. So it's fun to see dad on weekends, but as a parent, my responsibility to my child is different than being a fun dad. Mm. He needs to see that dad can get him ready for school, that dad can do homework. The dad has work to do during the week, and, and the he misses can, that experience. And the dad can also tell him no sometimes. So it's it, not always, dad's going to say yes no matter what you say. Well, and that, that's it too. Most kids in this situation know that from about noon on Sunday on, if they want to get a favor, it's probably going to, because most dads realize at 5 o'clock on Sunday, they're not going to see their kids all week. Yeah. And so they don't want the last impression to be, wow, I got in trouble right before I had to go back to mom's. Mm. So most kids have figured out they can get away with quite a bit more on a Sunday afternoon, which isn't healthy for a child. It's so important what you're doing, and I want to tell our audience how they can learn more about the organization you've created, Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. I know there are parents out there who need to get in touch and to get involved, maybe at their state legislative level as well. You can visit the website and follow them on social media. It's on your screen. I hope you'll jot it down. I hope you'll look into it because, as uh, Mark so eloquently said, this isn't about the parents. It's truly about the children. We've got a lot more fascinating guests coming up, so you better stay with us. Coming up, LGBTQ's legal suit against Jack Phillips and news with a twist of humor on it in case you missed it. More Huckabee is on.
Three years after a landmark religious liberty case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, a Colorado baker is back in the news. And I'm sure he's not all that excited about it. He's got a brand new book. He is excited about that, and I certainly am. And he's still fighting to live out his faith. I want you to welcome to the show the masterpiece cake shop owner, author of this book called The Cost of My Faith, and a great, great, courageous human being that we love. Meet Jack Phillips and his attorney from the Alliance Defending Freedom, Ryan Banger. Give him a big hand. Jack, so honored to have you here. Seven years you have been walking down this path. I, I remember hearing about your case when it first came out. I was a young man back then. Yeah, me too. I, I had a full head of hair and everything, okay? <laughs> did, did you ever conceive that this thing would still be going on seven years later? No, this is actually our third lawsuit that we're in. We were just in court just uh, the end of March. And uh, no, I had no idea when I opened the cake shop back in 1993, anything like this could happen. Jack, so our audience clearly understands, you served any and everyone. You had a couple of people who came in, a same-sex couple, and wanted you to do a custom wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. You told them, I'll sell you anything in the store. Look, I, nothing against you personally, but I cannot create a cake to celebrate a wedding that, that I have some challenges with as a biblical Christian. And they sued you for that. I mean, they could have gotten a cake somewhere else, but they decided to sue you and make you uh, pay dearly for that. And they, they did get a cake for free. It was a rainbow-layered cake, and they got yeah. it for free from a, another local baker. But yeah, they did sue us, and it was just about the message that I think a wedding cake um, presents on its own. If you walked into this room and you saw a wedding cake over there, you yeah. would know, or a conference room at a hotel, you would know that there was a marriage to be celebrated there. You have no idea because that wedding cake is an iconic symbol of a marriage. One of the great constitutional attorneys I have great respect for, I'm Jonathan Turley uh, in Washington, D.C. And he made the comment, he said that if you, uh, if Jack Phillips, were Jewish and you were asked to make a cake celebrating Adolf Hitler, nobody would expect you to do that. Or, uh, you know, if, if you were... Uh, an African-American baker, and someone asks you to make a racist cake, nobody would expect you to do that. So why is it that people would expect you to make a cake that violated something precious and dear to you, which is your faith from the just biblical point of view? Yeah. You know, I can't answer why the state was trying to compel me to do that, because especially at the time, it was illegal in Colorado for same-sex marriage. This is back in 2012 and no political officer could endorse yeah. that from their office. But yet they were forcing me to violate my uh, deeply held religious beliefs. And it wasn't just that cake, though. There are other cakes that we decided before we opened that we wouldn't create. Cakes that would be anti-American or cakes that would denigrate or insult other people, mm. including people who identify as LGBT. There are just certain cakes that we don't create. And that's because of the message of the cake. It's never because of the person who came in and ordered it. You know, I think that's fascinating because you wouldn't have made a cake that denigrated somebody who was gay. You wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Because that would have violated your sense of treating everyone with right. some level of decency and respect. Ryan, Alliance Defending Freedom, you guys have been involved in Jack's case. You've gone all the way to the Supreme Court now. You're probably headed back. Um, I, somebody described his experience like Groundhog Day. It just keeps going over and over and over. Legally, what's, what's the pathway for Jack? 
Well, Governor, Jack has been a rock. He has been an inspiration to all of us. And every law firm should be as lucky as we are to have a client like Jack Phillips. Yeah. And the path forward to him, it really, absolutely. He deserves it. Yes, he does. <laughs> so for most clients like Jack, the path forward is they just give up. But yeah. Jack will not give up. And so that's our real privilege to represent him. But like you said, this is about the right to conscience. It seems like the words just bake the cake have become a meme of the left. Mm. And there's a reason he doesn't bake the cake because Jack is an artist. And what he does is speech. What he does expresses a view. And the Constitution, the First Amendment, our very First Amendment in our Constitution says you don't have to do something that conflicts with your deeply held religious beliefs. The government can't force you to do that. And Jack is standing up for all of us. I mean, this ought to be a fairly easy case. I don't even know why it's not a nine to zero uh, done, don't ever come this way again with this nonsense. So what is the complication? Why is this so difficult for the courts to deal with and keep dragging Jack back through the mud? I couldn't have put it better myself, <laughs> Governor. It shouldn't be a complicated case. It's very straightforward and simple. Jack has a First Amendment right not to be coerced to say something that he doesn't believe. And I think if this case keeps going forward and if, we're not, if we don't prevail below, the case he has going right now, for instance, he was challenged to bake a cake for a gender transition. Uh -huh. And he said no, because that would conflict with his deeply held religious belief. The plaintiff said, I'm coming after you, Jack, because I'm gonna, quote, change the way you think. Mm. I, want to, I want to force you to correct the errors of your thinking. And no oh. court could, should force a believer, or any American for that matter, to do that. Well, it is an amazing thing. I cannot tell you how much I respect you, both as a Christian brother, uh, but also with someone with the courage of your convictions. When so many Christians that I know would get nowhere near as far as you are, and they just say, I, I just can't do this. I, I just can't. And they bail. Jack, you're out there not for you. You're out there for all of us. You're on the tip of the spear, my friend. And without you out there, the entirety of Christian conviction starts being lost all over this country. And I want to say to you, Ryan, thank God for Alliance for Defending Freedom. If it weren't for Christian organizations that get the very best religious liberty constitutional attorneys on cases like Jack's, do not charge him. You depend upon people like the rest of us to contribute so you can provide legal help. Ballpark figure, if you can, what would it have cost Jack to have had the kind of representation just if he'd gone just to some New York law firm. Oh. Well, I used to work for one of those big <laughs> firms, so I can tell you on some authority. Uh, we tried a case two months ago. It was a four-day trial. That easily would have cost him at least two to three million dollars. Two to three just for million. One, one trial. And wow. he's been doing this for almost a decade. Well, ADF has been right there beside us since the very beginning. God bless them. I couldn't afford to take a lawyer to lunch, let alone. <laughs> so but you ADF. could have gotten him a cake, that's for sure. <laughs> well, Jack Phillips, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And this is the new book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. It was on sale this past Tuesday, just came out. You can get it anywhere you buy your books. And if you want to learn more about Alliance Defending Freedom, and if you want to donate to Jack's Legal Fund, head over to adflegal.org. We're going to head over to Keith Bilby right now. He's going to tell us what we got coming up on the show. Well, up next, Mike's hilarious. In case you missed the news.
news stories and country music hitmakers, the front man. More Huckabee is coming your way. great message to come back into. Put a little love in your heart. You know, Keith, I think one of the most wonderful things about doing this show is that we got Trey Corley and the Music City Connection doing the music that rocks this place and just fantastic. They're the best. The best. I mean, I think we make it fun, but they really make it fun. They really do. most of them. Well, most of them, yeah, there's, yeah, it's true. Well, from the world's smallest fence, actually the world's smelliest small fence, to an absolute hog of a couch, we got the news that'll make you put your face mask over your nose and your eyes on in case you missed it. Well, we have all seen some pretty weird things during Zoom meetings, but fasten your seatbelts for this. Ohio State Senator Andrew Brenner was in a Zoom meeting while driving. So he used that gizmo that lets the user change the background to look like one is in an office. So you may know it's the same technology that they use to make it look like that President Biden is actually leaving his office. So. <laughs> Anyway, while Senator Brenner was zooming down the highway, others saw him glancing around to check the traffic in his office. What about right? the seatbelt? I mean... Well, yeah, there is, and he's wearing a shoulder strap wow. that mysteriously disappears in midair. Look at this. This is crazy. Anyway, Brenner refused to buckle to criticism. How's that? <laughs> he insisted that he was only listening on the call, so he wasn't distracted. But everyone else sure was. <laughs> well, at least we know he was wearing his seatbelt. And besides, the biggest danger of listening to a work meeting while driving isn't distraction. It's falling asleep at the wheel, right? right. You know, here's the capper, Keith. You'll love this. The purpose of the meeting that he was in was to discuss a bill to ban electronic devices that distract drivers. <laughs> oh, no. I kid you not. Oh, no. I think we're going to put him down as a nay on that Physician, one. Physician, heal thyself. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, from our interior desecrations department comes the story of the pig couch scam. This photo keeps popping up on Craigslist of a unique couch for sale. Boy, talk about hogging the couch. I mean, it's perfect for taking a nap after Thanksgiving dinner. You just toss a throw over it, and you've got a pig in a blanket. How's that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, boom. But warning, do not try to buy this couch. One, because your wife would murder you. And two, because it's actually a prank. It's truly a decade-old photo of a student art project and the real owner has no interest in selling it. And I mean, who would have an interest in selling that? You'd have an interest in buying it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but here's what you can do with it. Show it to your wife and tell her that if she won't let you put a recliner in the living room, 
You're going to buy this there instead. Yeah. Perfect. Of course, Keith, if you do that, I hope you got a mattress in the doghouse because yeah, you're going to sure. need it. Pretty sure. Well, in a breakthrough for fighting climate change, scientists at Purdue University have invented what they claim is the whitest paint of all time. Well, just how white is it? Okay, the paint is so white. It's whiter than Andy Williams wrestling a polar bear in a blizzard. Let me think about that. Think about that one. In fact, it is so white, Coca-Cola made it take sensitivity training. It is whiter than Barry Manilow's guacamole recipe. I don't know if they got that one or not. Uh, I don't know. It's anyway, whiter than the toilet this is going in. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and it is so white that it reflects, this is true, 98.1% of sunlight. So if you were to paint a roof with it, it actually cools the building surface better than an air conditioner. But there is a minor drawback it might blind any airline pilots who fly over it. And it also contains barium sulfate. You may not recognize that chemical concoction, but it's the same stuff that you swallow before taking an x-ray. Yeah, in fact, if you swallow this and your doctor uh, gives you the x-ray, he doesn't even need the machine to see inside of you. It's that white, there you go. Finally, two farmers in Michigan had a long-running feud over where their property line was, so one finally settled the issue by building a 250-foot-long fence between their houses out of a material that he had plenty of, manure. <laughs> Built the fence out of it. Now, that might be an effective way to finish off the border fence sometime, Wimby. We ought to suggest it. Anyway, his neighbor is not happy with him uh, because he felt like he was perpetrating this very smelly sneak attack. Could you read that again? I just no, I'm, that. I'll never read that one again. Wow. But he can't move the giant pile of dung because it's technically on the other guy's property. So this story gives me a really great idea. Okay, if Nancy Pelosi still wants a fence around Congress, you know she's one of them? I think we found the perfect building material. <laughs> There's plenty of it in Washington. And frankly, if they built it out of that, I think her fellow congressman would still stink about as much as the wall would, don't you think? Well, I got to tell you, I'm pooped, and I'm sure you are too. So we better quit before someone builds a fence around us. But until next time, always remember that we read the news. Coming up after the break, you've loved their music separately. Now, hear how the frontman came to be. You're watching Huckabee. Next week, celebrate Memorial Day weekend as we honor our veterans with retired Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. And welcome back. The frontman of country music features vocalists who were the voices of three of the biggest country music bands in all the 90s. Richie McDonald, formerly of Lone Star, Larry Stewart of Restless Heart, and Tim Rushlow, formerly of Little Texas. Well, you've heard all of their 
fantastic songs through the years in those individual bands. Collectively, they've just sold over 30 million records with over 30 hit songs. That ain't bad. But here's what's cool. They've just released their latest single. It is a absolute great song. I love the lyrics. You're going to love it. And it's called, If It Wasn't For The Radio. Also, they've just released their 2021 touring dates. I want you to make welcome the next sensation that's coming in country music, the frontman of country music. Wow. wow. Great having you guys. I love you. it, sir. I mean, this is like a, a, a music lover's world. dream to have the three of you join together. Whose idea was this? <laughs> was it you? It was Richie, actually. What did Richie, were you the one that said, guys, we ought to pull ourselves together here. Yeah, I think it was, uh, but you know, we've been doing this for probably what? 10? 10 years. Yeah. But um, Larry and I were down in Baton Rouge. We were doing a radio event one weekend and we were sitting there before we went on. I said, I got this idea just to do a, a thing called The Front Man. And just yeah. take three three lead singers that fronted, you know, successful bands and, and have a trio and call it Front Man. And we call up old Timmy and uh, the rest is history. We're just having a, a great time out here uh, playing all these songs and just... We've done a lot of touring overseas for the troops. Yeah. That's really what got us started on the off-seasons of yeah. our band. And you were doing that just sort of as a hobby. Yeah. I mean, just kind of to do it because you were doing it for uh, our armed service members. Then you realize people like this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's pretty much the truth. You know, we... At the time, you know, Larry was with Russell's Heart, and of course, Richie was with Lone Star. Yeah. I was no longer with Little Texas, and so I said, guys, let's go, when, you, when your bands aren't touring, let's go overseas and play for the troops. I've got a window there with Navy Entertainment. Uh -huh. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so we did, and then that turned into almost like an annual thing for a few years, and that was really the only time we could go in moonlight as the front men, if you will. But out of that, uh, we were just, we realized that this was powerful, and that at some point in life, we might get back around to doing this, and... Then COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you picked a great and we time, went, guys, to huh. say, let's do a tour. Perspective. Life. Sure. <laughs> Got an idea. Let's yeah. try this. So that's well, cool. you certainly had plenty of time to practice and uh, get your music together before the uh, concert season started. Now you're going to be able to go back out on the road. And yeah. uh, I, my guess is that there is a wonderful response to the three of you going out. I mean, all of your bands were such hit bands and people loved the music of each of the bands. It's like taking the best of, putting it together, and for the price of one ticket, you get the best three country bands of the 90s. I, what could go wrong with well, that? Well, we've been, we've, this is the first time we've gone out with a band. We've usually yeah. done the three of us, um, just acoustically overseas, and now we, we have the band, and uh, we're still trying to get more. Richie's still got number one songs we hadn't worked into the show yet. And uh, the only thing, would, nothing would go wrong if we could get Governor Huckabee to come out and go on the road with us. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> it's okay. I, I'll quit the show, take the gig. <laughs> You'll send me back about a week after I'm out there with you, but I've always wanted to do that. So, okay, Tim, you were with Little Texas. Uh, I mean, that song that Little Texas did, God Bless Texas, mm -hmm. it's like an anthem out there, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it really is. It, I didn't think at the time it would be, but it surely has turned out to be that. I had a, a friend that was on your show just the other day, um, uh, 
Bill, a comedy friend of mine, uh, William Lee Martin, who yeah. was on your show. Right. He sent me a video in Texas, in Arlington, Texas, at uh, Texas Live, of that video playing in the background. He goes, bro, you have an anthem. <laughs> and, and, and it's true, but yeah, it really has become that. And, and uh, it's, it's a blessing, you know, to have some up-tempo and some songs that people love. And, and um, it's just, they stand the test of time. And they've really made a resurgence. 90s country has made such a, a comeback. And it's the, the playlist of our three bands, there's a common thread that runs between us. And it's come back and now intermixed with, you know, Luke Bryan or Jason Aldean, you'll hear a Lone Star song or a Russell's Heart song. And so it's come back and, and we've seen a resurgence in that, and which is now the timing's perfect. We're, we're coming out of a really bad world problem, you know, so now we're able to go out and, and do this. So it's pretty exciting to get to go do well, it. You've got a lot of fans in this audience tonight, but I'm thinking about the millions of fans you got all over America who love your music, now realize that you're gonna bring them something unique. I wanna mention this song. Uh, if it wasn't for the radio, it's it's the new single that you're putting out as the three of you. What do you love about this song, real quickly? Just tell me what's what's cool about it. Go ahead. Yeah. Probably it talks about a lot of the reason why we came to Nashville. Yeah. You know, it it um, you know you grow up. The radio's powerful. You fall in love to the radio. You sing to the radio. You learn how to play an instrument to the radio. You yeah. go buy records to the radio. It, mm. You know, um, and so um, <clears throat> this song speaks to that, and especially people our age who, you know, the radio was huge. It's all we had growing yeah. up. And so it, to me, the radio has been powerful in, in our lives. Well, I want you guys to know how thrilled we are to have you here. Uh, we're excited about the concert schedule. America is going to be excited about it. And as you're about to see, the frontmen deliver a show. It's fun. It's powerful. It's engaging. And so if you want their touring schedule and their latest single, which you definitely want if it wasn't for the radio, go to their website, thefrontmanofcountry.com. Now, when we come back after the break, Richie, Larry, and Tim are going to perform a medley of their greatest hits. And then digitally, you can get the other songs. So don't you dare go anywhere. perform with Trey Corley in the Music City Connection and Mike sitting in on bass, the Frontman. That lonesome Texas sun was setting slow And in the rearview mirror I watched it go I can still see the wind in her golden hair. I close my eyes for a moment. I'm still there. The
He called her on the road From a lonely cold hotel room Just to hear him say I love you one more time We heard the sound Of the kids laughing in the background Had to wipe away a tear from his eyes Daddy, when you come home, he said the first thing came to his mind. I'm Yeah. 